let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, our study this morning is going to be somewhat different um, from what we usually do. If you're visiting for the first time, we usually take a text and develop it or develop a theme uh, with Bible verses around that. But uh, this morning, there's not going to be one main text that we use. Instead, we're going to be doing more of a historical study. In fact, I feel a little bit more like a a college professor this morning. I grew the beard uh, for today, so uh, I would fit with that. But, um, you know, sometimes when we study the Word, we get caught up in that we have to have our our application and our takeaways. But uh, there are other times where we just need to be educated about the Word, right? Um, Times where we just need to learn and be exposed to what the Word of God says, especially uh, as it relates to what's going on in the world. Now, this has been a very uh, busy week of news. Uh, much of it has been very spiritually significant, but there was one headline this week that I hope uh, really caught your attention. Uh, this news has been characterized in a number of ways, uh, purely political or pandering to the, the president's base. Uh, some people have termed it as foolish. Others have said it's going to be very dangerous to the world, and it's been criticized by a number of nations, mostly a Muslim, but even our greatest ally in Britain uh, had something to say about it, and it is, uh, you've probably seen in the news, it has set off a wave of uh, violent protests in the Middle East, uh, and it has been largely dismissed uh, as something that only makes sense if you take a literal interpretation of the Bible, which we do, and we all know that uh, the majority of people in the world think that uh, seeing the Bible literally is, is just an uh, unintelligent, narrow way to believe. So the news and the media has pretty much excoriated uh, this event. There's been a lot of forecasts of doom and hostility and division, and, and there's really been a, a very negative stance uh, that has been taken against something that the Bible clearly talks about. But that shouldn't uh, surprise us or discourage us, should it? Because how many knows that we get um, our news from the Word of God, not CNN or Fox News or the New York Times? Everything we read, everything we see needs to be held up against the Bible. And we need to assess it uh, with spiritual eyes. We need to understand what the Spirit of God is teaching us about its importance when we see things in the news and how it relates to the Word of God. Now, the announcement that we're talking about is that our country this week uh, declared that it is going to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And that is a very significant event uh, in history. And it has major implications for us as Bible-believing Christians. Uh, Jerusalem is the most polarizing city in the world. And both the Jews and the Palestinians uh, claim it as their capital. Uh, Christianity and, and Judaism and Islam all say that it is one of the most important cities, if not the most important city to them. But this city is tiny. We'll see that in a, in a couple minutes. Uh, and right now, like the old Berlin, it is divided into eastern and western portions. And the main area of conflict, the main area of dispute, is an area called the Temple Mount uh, that is on the eastern side of the city. And this is where a Muslim mosque has been built and, and resided, and the Jews know that that's the site of the original temple, and they want to rebuild a temple there. 
Now, Jerusalem is in the middle of an area that is known as the West Bank, and you can see this on the screen. It's that green area that looks like a backwards B uh, that, is, that is under dispute, and that's a, that's a divided area. Um, the Jews, rightfully so, believe that that whole country uh, is theirs, um, and we'll study that in a couple minutes, but the Arabs want to establish a state, a Palestinian state, uh, in the West Bank. And all of this is set against the framework that there are 22 Arab nations surrounding Israel, uh, most or all of which refuse to even recognize Israel's right to exist as a nation. And they would celebrate with uh, absolute hysteria if Israel was destroyed uh, from the face of the earth. Now, this piece of land, all over the nation of Israel, is about the size of New Jersey, and we'll see that in a couple minutes. But it is literally at the center of almost every conflict and tension in the world this morning, with the exception probably of North Korea. And it will continue to be that way until Jesus returns and takes the church back to heaven. And once that happens, it will then become the world's only focus. All the major players in the Middle East and Asia are involved in, in this piece of land, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, uh, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, uh, Egypt, Russia, even China. Uh, there are a number of others too. It's, they're all focused on this piece of land and that escalates every day. The UN believes that it has the right uh, to determine Israel's geographic boundaries. It's actually taken land that Israel legitimately won in the Six-Day War. And now Israel uh, pretty much stands alone. Even the support from our country, uh, who's been its closest ally, has eroded over the last decade. But now with this declaration this week, uh, things have changed. And the reason that that uh, has relevance to us this morning uh, is that our understanding of God's plan for Israel and our own uh, personal theology and interest about what happens in Israel not only gives us a different perspective about the news that we're hearing from the mainstream press, but it also gives us greater urgency to fulfill the Great Commission as we studied in Joshua and taking new ground. And it correlates to whether the Lord blesses us. So this morning, we're going to look at the specific uh, of God's plans and a number of statements that God makes about Israel and his word. And I really want to encourage you to take some notes this morning, write a lot of things down. We're going to be a lot of information to digest, uh, and it's important that we understand this from the perspective of God's word. So let's start Genesis chapter 12. I want to look at verses 2 to 3. We've read these verses before and refer to them, but let's read them again. God is speaking to Abram. He tells him to leave his uh, land where he's living. And he says in verse 2, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. He was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions they'd accumulated, the persons they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. We've talked about Canaan over the last two months with Joshua, right? Thus they came to the land of Canaan. 
Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, let me give you four truths this morning, and um, we'll give some supporting verses and show you some more uh, pictures on the screen to to just kind of help us understand this. But the first truth we want to learn about the conflict over Jerusalem is that this all traces back to Abraham. Everything we're seeing this morning in terms of the Middle East traces back to the passage that we just read. After the ark, Noah gets off with his kids. They they begin to to replenish the earth. Uh, The water goes down. They build an altar, and and the the children spread out, start having kids, and the the world's replenished. After uh, the, the ark, then you have Babel. You can look back a couple chapters that the, the world starts to explode in terms of population. People get an idea that they want to become God. They want to ascend to heaven. So they start to build a tower to heaven and, and start to try to usurp God. And God uh, puts the quietus on that and confuses them with their language. And they scatter out and, and the world gets replenished that way. So, so we've got the ark and then we've got Babel. After that, the Lord speaks to this man. Abram, who would become Abraham. And he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And this covenant's not dependent on what you do. This covenant is unconditional. You have nothing to do with it. I've just decided this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a nation out of you. And your descendants are going to be like the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky. It'll be too numerous to count. And I'm going to give you a land, a specific territory to live in, as a nation, and I'm going to bless you as your God. Twelve times in Scripture, twelve is a significant number, God says this is an everlasting covenant. And it has far-reaching implications, because if you look back at verse 3, it says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Now remember that, because we're going to come back to that in a couple minutes. Now, even though this covenant was unconditional, the Lord did have an expectation that those in this nation would trust him, that they would yield to him, that they would follow him all the days of their life, that he says number of times, don't pursue other gods, don't, don't get off track, don't do your own thing, you're supposed to serve me because I'm blessing you, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my nation, you're going to be in this land, don't be autonomous. Because I will fulfill my plan if you do that. But if you don't, it's going to get delayed. It's going to get off track. So when Abraham made a critical decision at a moment where he was under pressure and he didn't have the patient faith that he should have had to trust in the word of God, it caused a historical chain reaction that still exists today. You may know the account. Sarah laughed. She couldn't believe when the angel said, you're going to have a child. Uh, Abraham was close to 100. Sarah was close to 100. And, and she was well past having kids. And, and the three men come. One of them, I believe, is Jesus. And, and they come and they say, you're going to have a, a child. And she's back in the tent going, oh, brother, are you kidding me? Who are these guys? They're saying we're going to have kids? Come on. I'm like 100 years old. And because she didn't have faith, because she panicked, 
She went to Abraham and said, look, this is a joke. There's no way that's going to happen. If you're going to have kids, it's not going to be by me. So why don't you go to my servant, Hagar, and, and have a child with her, and, and that'll take care of it. And that's what Abraham does, because Abraham doesn't trust the Lord fully at that point. Now, Hagar has a son named Ishmael. You're tracking with me, right? Hagar has a son named Ishmael, and Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab race. And because of Ishmael's jealousy and resentment that he was not the chosen child because Isaac was, because he was banished, because there was so much tension within Abraham's household that he's got this son with the servant, and the son's not the son of the promise, and there's resentment toward the actual son of the promise, Isaac, that, that Ishmael then becomes uh, a person, and his descendants become people that decide that they are going to be in opposition to the Jews. Genesis 12 is the start of the conflict between Jews and Arabs that exists in 2017, that exists over that land right there. So we've got this, this sense of conflict and problem, and part of the issue that the Arabs have had is that they want what the Jews have. So when God says, that's your nation, Israel, that's the land that I'm going to give you, the Arabs say, well, we don't recognize that because we think it's illegitimate and we want Israel eliminated. And ground zero for all of this is the city of Jerusalem. Now look at these words from Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 5, because the words are unmistakable. He says, since the day that I brought my people from the land of Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. Nor did I choose any man for a leader over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. The words are unmistakable. God has made it abundantly clear. Jerusalem is supposed to be the main city for Israel, not for other nations, not divided, not shared. And it will be the place for Israel's temple. It will be the place where the presence of God will be. Now, those verses right there, they can be avoided, they can be disputed, they can be dismissed by anyone who doesn't believe the Bible. But we know that the word of the Lord is true, right? We know that the word of the Lord is established. So, from day one, this all traces back to Abraham. Number two, Israel's land has specific boundaries. Turn over a page to chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, because we're going to see here that Israel's land has specific boundaries. Now, we studied this in our Joshua series. We talked about uh, the land that God had given them, but the borders of the land that God covenanted to Abraham uh, and Israel are far larger than their current borders. Now, a lot of these, um, a lot of the the discussion about this has kind of been uh, subject to interpretive dispute. There's there's been some uh, minor tweaking in terms of what this actually looks like. But I want to show you a map because the borders um, that are discussed in Scripture are pretty much this. Now, you see, I hope, and I hope you know your geography well enough. You see that little 
thing that says Israel, that tiny little strip of land along the Mediterranean. That's the nation of Israel today. And we just saw that half of that in the green area is under dispute and is occupied. Well, when you look at the red lines, that's the actual territory that God covenanted to Abraham. You see that it involves Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and part of Egypt. Well, obviously, that's not happening right now. Israel can't even uh, claim their whole land that they won. But this is what God said to Abraham. This is yours. And I want to look at it here in chapter 15 and verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. That's the eastern border right there where it says Iraq. The Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Gergesite, and the Jebusite. Well, we don't know where those are, but we know they're in that red box. Now, when you look at that and you say, all right, now, there was so much hassle this week, so much dispute over the fact that the president said that Israel's going to have its capital in Jerusalem. Now imagine the conflict if we come back and say, well, that's the actual land of Israel. That's the actual territory that God covenanted to Abraham would be the area that Israel would occupy. Now you're dealing with five or six different countries, all who hate Israel, but that's their actual land. So you can see how this is going to create all kinds of conflict. But the Lord says in chapter 17 that this land is given to Israel as an eternal possession. And it's not given to the descendants of Ishmael because Abraham's first thought was, oh oh Lord, I pray that you'll bless Ishmael, that, that he'll be part of this. And God says, no, I'm sorry, this is not his land. This is not for Ishmael's descendants. This is for Isaac's descendants and Jacob's descendants and Joseph's descendants because I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So his plan for Israel was to be accomplished. Now, those borders are established by the Lord. They're not subject to war. They're not subject to governmental treaties. They're not subject to commissions on what the Middle East should look like. This is what God established. And in 1920, I'm really going to bore you now, so stay with me. In 1920, the British established a territory for the Jews that looked almost exactly like that. A little bit smaller, a little bit less of Iraq and Saudi Arabia, but it was significant. And then they decided, well, maybe that's too much. So in 1922, they said, we're just going to give you the land west of the Jordan River. There were no national rights established for the Arabs. But then in 1947, the Arabs had already occupied about 50% of Israel's land. So the United Nations said, you know what, we really should divide this nation, kind of the map we saw earlier, into two states. There should be an Arab state and an Israeli state. And really, Jerusalem should be what they called internationalized. In other words, Jerusalem isn't yours, Israel. It's kind of, it's kind of, everybody's. Let's just all share and sing Kumbaya and it'll be really happy. Jerusalem will just be a crossroads for everybody. Well, in 1948, Israel declared itself an independent state. And 700,000 Arabs either left or were expelled from Israel. At the same time, 800,000 Jews were kicked out of Muslim nations. 
So there was a shift. The Arabs moved out and the Jews moved in. 1948 was a very significant year in biblical history. In 1967, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon, so west and south, immediately east, northeast, and south, they all decided that Israel shouldn't be around anymore. So they invaded the nation of Israel. Israel was completely outnumbered. They were outmanned, they were outweaponized, everything. The goal of that, 1967, is to wipe Israel off the map so that there wouldn't be an Israel anymore. But in six days, Israel captured the whole territory. They captured Sinai, which is southeast, uh, southwest. They captured the Golan Heights, which is up by the Sea of Galilee. They captured the Gaza, which is west along the Mediterranean. They captured the West Bank, which is what we just saw in green. And they captured Jerusalem in six days. Now that changed the narrative a little bit. And Israel at that point made a compromise and said, we will return all those areas except for Jerusalem. Now, this is something you don't hear in the news. We'll return all those areas that we just captured legitimately except for Jerusalem in return for a peace treaty. If you, you Arab nations will say, no more conflict, we're good. We'll give everything back that we just won except for Jerusalem because Jerusalem's ours and, and, and we'll make nice. But the, the Jews in the nation didn't really trust that. And the Arabs said, we're not going to negotiate with you. So settlements started to pop up. And there started to be kind of an infiltrating and mix of Arab and Jews. This has led to this tense ebb and flow that's taking place now that's worse than it's ever been. And the key piece of this is Jerusalem. I want you to look at this picture because you can see, I hope, I know it's not huge, but you can see the the beige, uh, the kind of orangey beige is the Muslim area. The, the blue is the Christian area. The bottom left is the Armenian area. And the bottom right is the Jewish area. And then you see that area to the right. That's the Temple Mount. So here you've got this tiny little nation, this tiny little city. And, and within that, you've got four distinct areas in town, north, south, east, and west, And then you've got this polarizing area called the Temple Mount where this Muslim mosque is that Israel says, no, that shouldn't be there because that's where the temple was and that's where the temple's going. So, significant conflict. Now, for perspective, how big is that city? We think Jerusalem, international city. It must be like London or Paris or New York. Well, let me give you a perspective on how big Jerusalem is. Jerusalem is only 220 acres. This area you're seeing, that, that kind of roundish, squarish thing, that's 220 acres. You know how big 220 acres is? Six Flags is 300 acres. So you could put Jerusalem and the Regency Mall in Six Flags and they'd both fit. Now that's not New York City. It's not Chicago Chicago goes west 60, 70 miles. It goes north, really. I mean, we're, we're technically almost a suburb of Chicago now. We're like between Chicago and Milwaukee. But Kenosha now is a, is a bedroom community for Chicago. Chicago goes another 50 miles south. Chicago's massive. We're talking six flags here. 
That's how big Jerusalem is. And yet it's the center of every dispute. Let me show you how big Israel itself is. The blue is Israel. That's Lake Michigan. In the yellow. So this is something tiny. Now, why do I show you that? Why do we care about that? Because at the heart of the world is this nation and this city. And it's logical to ask that if this... Everybody cares about a nation that's so small with a city that's two-thirds the size of an amusement park in an area that's not fertile, that the nation is not overwhelmed with oil or, or gold or any valuable natural resources. If everybody cares about that, then the Bible has to be true. Because if the Bible's not true, why do you care? Why does Jerusalem matter? Why does this nation that's rocky and dry and hot and, and inhospitable to life, why does anybody care about that if the Bible's not true? If Israel's not special, Jerusalem's just another little town in the Middle East, why do all the nations want to control it? Why do the Arab nations want to destroy it? And why does it seem that the Lord is holding back all these nations from overwhelming Israel with a massive show of force in order to eliminate it? Well, the answer, as always, is in Scripture. Ezekiel 5.5 says, This is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. Israel is located at the crossroads of all the nations of Europe. It's at the center, at the middle point of Europe Africa, and Asia. It is strategically located geographically. But the next verses in Ezekiel 5 tell us more. He says, But you, Israel, have rebelled against my word more wickedly than the other nations around you. So I will execute judgment against you in the sight of those nations. In other words, Israel's rebellion against the Lord has induced judgment. It has brought about discipline against uh, discipline from the Lord, and it has created jealousy and opposition that they will not be freed of, listen now, until they repent in the last days. So why do people care? Well, part of it is because God said it in the center of all the nations, and Israel has not responded accordingly. And then the answer to the second question, why is God holding back? Well, let's look at what Deuteronomy 30 says. Deuteronomy 30 says, So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse that I've set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I've commanded you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you, and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. This is Old Testament. When they went to Assyria and Babylon, they were spread out. They were scattered. God says, I'm going to bring you all back. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord will God will gather you. And from there he'll bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. That's Genesis 12. You will possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. 
Even in the Torah, even in the law, God says, here's my plan. I told Abraham I'd give him a nation. I told him I would bless him. And I gave you specific boundaries that I've shown you clearly. Joshua, you guys walked there. You gathered it. You took the land. We studied that for two months. Now I'm telling you, when you serve me, when you trust me, when you honor me, when you live for me, I'm going to take you from any part of the world that I can find you. And I'm going to bring you back. Uh, During their exile in the Old Testament, God said, you're refusing to serve me. You're refusing to trust me. When Jesus came as the Messiah, many responded, but most rejected him. Even today at the Wailing Wall, there are people praying. There are rabbis praying. And you're like this. I've stood there at the Wailing Wall, and they're tucking little pieces of paper and the little pieces of paper into the original wall of the temple. They're saying, Messiah, come. Messiah come. And the problem is Messiah's already come. Messiah's already been there, but they rejected him and continued to reject him. And God says, until you repent, until you recognize Jesus, and you will, you're not going to be restored to the land. But once you do, I'm bringing you all back. And this nation is going to be called Israel. So that leads to the third truth. Until, this piece of, until that happens, this piece of land will always be a source of conflict. Until that happens, until we see Deuteronomy 30 fulfilled, this land, that piece of land that we've seen, will always be a source of conflict. Now turn over to Zechariah 12 for a minute. You're like, where is Zechariah? It's at the end of the Old Testament. Go to Matthew, go back two chapters, or two books. Zechariah chapter 12. In Ezekiel, the Lord warns Israel that their return to the land will really tick off the nations around them. It'll really anger them and that they're going to try to crush Israel from every side. The reason I want us to look at Zechariah 12, you're not bored yet, right? You're with me? That was tepid, but that's okay. Class isn't dismissed for about 10 minutes, so hang in with me. I want to go to Zechariah 12 because I want us to see how the Lord's going to defend his people. Zechariah 12, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, as stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. And all who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment, and his rider with madness. But I'll watch over the house of Judah, while I'll strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their heart, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts. Their God. And what's that saying? God is saying, look, I want to let you guys know, first of all, look at verse 1, that I'm in charge. I created the heavens. I created the earth. I own all of it. You guys can, can argue about the land, but it's mine. I own it. I created it. 
I gave you the spirit that animates you and makes you alive. So let's just be clear that I'm the Lord. Second of all, I want to make it clear that this conflict that Israel's going through is going to involve the whole world. And when we look at the news and we see what happened this week and the reaction to it, we see evidence that what he said 2,535 years ago is now absolutely true. Here's the beauty of Scripture. Zechariah is written 2,500 years ago. God says, here's what's going to happen. Here's how it's going to be laid out. And then we see this week on New York Times, USA Today, CNN, Fox News, we see that Zechariah 12 is being fulfilled. God says, here's the bottom line. I'm going to protect my people. I'm going to protect this nation. And all the nations like Iran and Syria who think they're going to overthrow Israel, let me tell you something. I got other plans. I'm in complete control. And I'm not going to allow anybody or any nation to have success against my people unless I allow it. But here's the end game. Israel is going to repent, and I'm going to restore them. And he says in Joel 3, if you try to divide Israel, I'm going to come up against you. Now, you would think... You would think that Israel would read those texts and they would say, all we have to do is repent and get right with the Lord and the Lord is going to work in miraculous ways to deliver us and bring us back. But they don't. They continue to be stubborn. They continue to be rebellious. Now, we're at the end of our history lesson. You say, I think, maybe, I don't know, why should I care? That's nice, and it was kind of bittersweet to go back through history class again. Don't know how I feel about it. Don't really miss college. But, but, but what's the bottom line? What impact does this have on our lives on a cold day in Wisconsin in 2017? I mean, we know the land's important. We know it's at the center of everything that's going on. But how does it affect you and me? Well, let's get to the last point. Because the last truth this morning is that our theology... Our theology and our approach to Israel has practical and eternal significance. Our theology, you and me, our church, our theology about Israel and our attitude toward Israel has practical and eternal significance. There are some prominent Christian scholars, and I'll use that word in quotes, who argue that Israel is no longer in God's plans. That, that they've been replaced by the church. That the church now ha- has taken over. That God's kind of set Israel over there and said, you blew it. You don't have a chance anymore. So now those promises, uh, that thing about the land, that doesn't apply anymore. Now the church is the only recipient. That's called replacement theology and it's wrong. The other scholars say, well, modern Israel is nothing like biblical Israel. And the covenant and the prophecies that were made to Abraham and, and all this stuff that was kind of Old Testament, that's, that's really invalidated because, you know, if this is not biblical Israel. This is modern Israel. Modern Israel is different. And I want to tell you, that also is wrong. Here's how I know it's wrong. Because God's covenant with Israel is eternal. And the prophecies aren't set aside Because times have changed. This is something we need to understand about the Word of God. The Word of God doesn't become invalidated simply because the times are different. The Word of God is eternal. 
the word of God is profitable until Christ returns, and then the word of God will be with us again. So we can't say, well, it's 2017, come on, it's not relevant anymore, and it doesn't apply, and we've got to adapt, and we've got to change. This is the conversation in the American church. We, we've got to adapt and change and fit it in, and people are sensitive, and, and, and you know, come on, we've got to, we got to, no, the word of God is the word of God. And we can't say, well, it doesn't apply because Israel's different. Times have changed and technology and I don't know. It's a different day and age. So we're talking about Abraham. Come on, that's like 5,000 years ago. That can't possibly apply. There are legitimate Christian scholars who are saying that. The problem is that doesn't work. And the New Testament and Revelation make it clear that the church doesn't appropriate Israel's promises and that the times haven't changed, they're just being fulfilled. So when Paul says in Ephesians 4, there's no Jew and no Greek, we're one body, one Lord, one faith, what he was teaching in Ephesians was, listen Jews, stop, re- stop rejecting the Gentiles, because the Jews, when the Gentiles were coming along, were saying, we're not going to accept them. We're the Jews. Gentiles aren't allowed in the body, and Paul says, no, you don't understand, things have changed. You rejected Christ, and now the Gentiles are being saved. Now, God hasn't forgotten you, Israel. There's a plan for you. And in Romans, he says, one day, you who have been cut off the vine will be grafted back in. In other words, the church is going to be Jew and Gentile, Greek and Jew, all together, one body, one Lord, one faith, one Savior. That's going to happen. But until then, you need to understand God has a plan for the Gentiles too. But Israel, hear this. I'm not done with you. Because God is long-suffering and he's gracious. And what he's going to do with Israel is another picture of his grace. Because like Israel, we were in sin And in rebellion against the Lord, we were proud and defiant, and we had no desire to repent. And the Lord has every right to hold us accountable and destroy us. But he is a loving and merciful God. And he offers salvation and forgiveness and restoration to any person who will repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And the same applies to Israel. They've been hardened and resistant, but someday their hearts are going to open up and they're going to repent and they're going to trust in Jesus as the true Messiah and God is going to forgive them and restore them forever. So as God's chosen people who he made an everlasting covenant with, who is part of the body of Christ in the future, The Lord tells us, okay, church, listen now. The Lord tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and to love Israel. There's no other city in the Bible where God says pray for that city. God never says pray for New York, even though we should. He never says pray for Chicago, even though we should. He never says pray for Racine. How many know that we should? But he says pray for Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We're also reminded in Genesis 12 that the Lord says, I will bless those who bless Israel, and I will curse those who curse Israel. So that says how we treat Israel, how we view 
Israel is, is in, uh, God it looks at that and says, here's how I'm going to treat you. So when our government comes out and says, we're going to stand with Israel, we're going to support Israel, we believe Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, that's not just a political ploy to get reelected. That's a significant moment in history. And it means that if we stand with Israel, that we're going to be the voices of, of dissent. We're going to be in the minority. But listen, that doesn't matter because we're defending the word of God. And Zechariah 14 assures us that Jesus is going to return to Jerusalem. He's going to come and stand on the Mount of Olives. When he stands on the Mount of Olives, it's going to divide into two. It's going to crack open, and he's going to walk down the Mount of Olives, through the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was betrayed. He's going to walk across the Kidron Valley. He's going to walk up to the wall of Jerusalem, where the eastern gate of Jerusalem is closed, and he's going to open that thing, and he's going to walk right into the Temple Mount. That's what he is going to do. And what does that tell us? That tells us that when that happened, not only is this issue going to be resolved, not only is he going to conquer every nation and set up his kingdom, but the Bible says that when that happens, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess in heaven and in earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. So this headline this week, this little history lesson this morning, it's not something to just put behind us. It is significant in terms of our understanding of the end times, and it should really heighten our excitement. It should really get us thinking about the return of the Lord and how are we preparing, and am I ready to see Jesus? Because there's nothing left to happen historically. Jesus can come in the next five seconds. There's nothing that, that still has to be fulfilled. His return is imminent. And he says, listen, the days are short. If, the, if this headline this week didn't waken us up to that, then we're just not paying attention. The days are short. But what does he also say when he says the days are short? The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. This is not a time for us just to go, okay, well, Jerusalem, it's all happening, and Jesus is coming soon, so I just need to buckle down, sit in my house, and get ready, and, and wait. No, he says, no, here's, here's what that should stir you to do. There are people out there that need to know about me. There, there are people that are waiting to hear, God loves you, God wants to forgive you, you have to repent, you have to trust in Jesus, he's your only hope, he's your only savior. You, you need to respond to that. There are people that are waiting to hear that, and he says, listen, my redemption's drawing nigh, your eyes are up, you're looking, you know I'm coming soon. So what are you going to do about it? We need to be praying for Israel. We need to be praying for our country. We need to ask the Lord to protect Israel and, and to bring them to repentance so they'll be redeemed by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, just like we've been. And we need to support the nation of Israel. We need to support anybody that stands for the nation of Israel because no matter what the press is, this is not a political issue. This is a spiritual issue. Jerusalem is where our Savior was crucified and buried. Jerusalem is where our Savior was raised again from the dead to ensure our salvation. And Jerusalem is the place where he is coming back to set up his kingdom and we will be with him.
So now what do we do? We need to tell people the good news. We need to take advantage of the opportunity that news has given us this weekend. What do you think about that? Do you know about Jerusalem? Do you know about what God said about Jerusalem? Well, I don't, that was a long time ago. Yeah, but listen, listen. God has a plan. It's being fulfilled. You can see it. This is not just a minor thing. This is history being fulfilled. This is the prophecy being fulfilled. Jesus said this would happen. You need to understand. And let me, do you know Jesus? Why? No, come on, seriously. This is all going to blow up at some point. Like this, this can't keep going like this. It's only been 70 years since Israel declared itself a nation. That's, that's not a long time. 70 is a number in the Bible, by the way. So, so, What do you think? The opportunity to engage people in conversation at this point is profound. Even if they disagree with you, even if they curse at you, even if they say, hey, you're full of it. You're you're a Christian. You believe the Bible. Yeah, I do. Actually, it's really, it's, it's wonderful. Let me tell you about it. This is not the time for us to be discouraged or deterred. It's the time for us to get passionate and fervent and zealous about telling people about the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray.